We are uh, at the point in our, our life where we are in the middle of a, a sermon series that we've titled Refocus. And the purpose of this is uh, to call us to refocus our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the lifeblood and the heartbeat of Christianity. And we need constant reminders. As a matter of fact, most of the New Testament is a testimony and a letter and a call from Paul and the other New Testament writers to Christians to remember the gospel. Because it's always our sinful tendency to move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there a task in your life that is just super tedious? And you dread it every single time that it comes up because it never fails that as soon as you're done with it, inevitably, it's right there again. For my wife, it's laundry. With three boys in the house, it's always laundry. There's always more laundry or there's always more dishes. I don't understand how easy it is for us to, to fill up a dishwasher every day. I love mowing my yard. It's something that I enjoy doing. So much of what I do as a pastor is spent in my head or in conversations, and it's, it's so difficult sometimes to walk away with a sense of purpose or a sense of accomplishment. I have purpose, but it's difficult to find that spirit and that sense of accomplishment. So nobody mows my yard but me unless it just is it, it, it's something that I can't deal with because there's something about being done and stepping back and looking at it and going, you know what? That looks good. My yard looks good. There's a sense of accomplishment that comes with that until I get up the next morning and there's one of those little sprigs of grass or multiples all over the yard, those thick ones, you know, those nasty ones that grow in all kinds of circles and unless you just run around in circle on top of it, you never can get them all. And the next morning it just pokes its little head up, just waving at you saying, hey, I'm still here. And the best that you can do is never good enough. And that's exactly what happens in our lives with sin. All of our best efforts. And every single time that we, we think we come to the place where, okay, I've got that taken care of. It's out of my life. It's past me. It's done. It's over. Soon as you think that it's right, here comes that little sprig of glass, or grass, that little sprig of sin that just pops its little head up and waves at you. It says, here I am. I'm still here. You're still struggling. It's exhausting. When we perpetually attempt to do in our lives what only God has the ability to do, and what every single one of us needs and what the gospel gives to us is a reminder that we need to be rescued. We've been looking at this gospel chart that I, I, I shared with you, and it's in the shape of a J, and Paul Miller is the author who, uh, who ultimately started this notion of the, the J curve. But in the J-curve that we've been looking at as we've been talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of all of Scripture is the story of the gospel. It's on repeat. Genesis through the end, the book of Revelation, is the testimony of this gospel story that starts with creation, descends into the fall because of our disobedience, which then we are rescued out of by Jesus Christ, who is now working on us and in us to bring us to the place where he is going to restore us. And it looks a little bit different up here this morning because I'm going to try a little different posture and a little bit different uh, 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 tactic as I'm, I'm teaching. Some of you know if you've been in a, in a situation, I'm far more comfortable with a pen in my hand than, or a marker in my hand and a whiteboard behind me. So we're going to try something a little bit different this morning and see what we can get. But as we are here, we talk about our need for the gospel. And as we've walked through 
um, creation, fall, and now we look to the rescue, there's no greater passage of Scripture, I think, that articulates the gospel and articulates what Christ has done for us than Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. But we're going to be looking at chapter 9 together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, look with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 9. Where the author of Hebrews writes, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drinks and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, you are an amazing God. You prove that over and over in my life and in our life. You have manifested yourself before this world and your creation. And Father, in our sin, we are so prone to wander, so prone to descend from your glory and from your grace into something lesser, to depend on and worship things that are less than you. I pray this morning, Heavenly Father, that you would work and Holy Spirit, you would descend upon this place that you might rescue us. Rescue us from our sin. Rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us instead to something better, something greater, which is the salvation that comes only in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. We're going to try to turn this thing on and hook this thing up and we'll see what we can get out of it. How about that? In this opening passage of this scripture, in this chapter, the first section really is what I'm going to serve as a very long introduction. Because in the first section of this passage of scripture, what we find is we find ultimately our problem. As the author talks about the tabernacle, what we find in the tabernacle is the tabernacle is a declaration of our desperate need for God. This is going to think on it for a minute. And in our picture, this is the place where what we see is we see, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we found that God created the world. And when we look at creation, we know that God created creation with a good design. This thing may not cooperate, and if it doesn't, oh well, we'll just flow with it, right? It was working earlier, but don't you know, devil, the devil loves to hang around in our technology, and he messes everything up, right? So the tabernacle, we talk about, the tabernacle here in, ver, in chapter 9 is referring back to the Hebrew um, uh, and the, the Israelite practice of worship in the Old Testament. There was a place where they gathered to worship, and that place was first the tabernacle, and then it was the temple. Uh, praise the Lord, there it is, right? And so what we find out in this passage of Scripture, we find out that we see the picture, and what we've talked about, when we talk about, right, we've, we've drawn this picture, this Oh, come on now. This picture of a J-curve, right? And my handwriting is going to be rough today. And this J-curve is the story of Scripture. And we start the story of Scripture with God's creation. And the tabernacle was a picture of God's creation. It was a constant reminder to the people that the tabernacle was to serve as the throne of God, right? The tabernacle was this, this mobile tent that served almost like a palace for God. And it's a picture of God's good design, right? Because what we see in the tabernacle is we see all of this beauty and we see all of this um, creation. One commentator, one study Bible notes it this way. The tabernacle is a tented palace for Israel's divine king. That God is enthroned, if you'll remember. The Ark of the Covenant was to serve almost as a throne of God where these two cherubim sat and God would meet with Moses on the top of this box, the Ark of the Covenant that he had created, right? And in that place, God reigned. And in that place, the tabernacle reflected the beauty of God. It had all of the best things, fine linens and purples and blues and, and precious metals. And as a matter of fact, the closer that you got inside of the, the tabernacle to the holy place where God would sit, the more precious the metals became. It was bronze on the outside. It was silver when you got closer. And then when you got to the very heart of the temple in the tabernacle, you encounter gold. But more than that, the, the, 
the tabernacle was a picture almost, if you will, of like a mini Eden. There were many things inside of the tabernacle that were meant to call the people of Israel's mind back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. The gold that was there, the presence of God that was there, the, the, the candlestick that was in that place, that was designed to be a picture of the tree of life. God's presence is there, the, the presence of cherubim, the fact that the tabernacle was meant to always be facing east and the way that you entered the tabernacle was through the east is a reminder of the end of Genesis chapter 3 that God cast them out to the east. The way into the garden was from the east, it's now guarded by cherubim and the tabernacle was decorated with cherubim all over the place because the cherubim are there to send a separate message the cherubim are there, and the, and the picture of Scripture we saw last week is that things didn't stay and remain as God designed them. Instead, we have this reality in Scripture, what we call as the fall. And in the fall, what we see is that God's good design was broken by our sin. And what we come into contact with in Genesis chapter 3 is the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of the rest of the world. We saw that sin separates, that sin leads to struggle, sin leads to suffering in our lives. And that's where you're going to find yourself most of your life. That's where you're going to find your friends and your family, your neighbors that you are trying to communicate the, the powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all experiencing suffering in a world that is broken. We're all experiencing struggle and strife in a world that's broken. And there's a place inside of every single one of us that we know, if you remember, we talked about a reminder, a recollection that points us back to the fact that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And so inevitably what we do, not only does the tabernacle point to the fact that God exists and that God created a good design, it points to the fact that our sin has separated us from God. And we're always trying in some way to get back to Eden, get back to fellowship with God. And what the Bible articulates throughout its scripture is that in all of our efforts to try to get ourselves back to God, what we end up on are these wayward, these broken, these fallen pathways as we are trying to do in our strength what only God is able to do in his grace, we fall far short. The tabernacle, even the author here, indicates that the Holy Spirit, verse 8 of chapter 9 in Hebrews, that the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. And all of our best efforts to reopen that way back into God's presence lead us in this wandering, fallen, broken desperate attempt to do what only God can do. And we see that in the practices of the religious uh, people in, the, in Israel. God's own good design was that they would sacrifice, that they would have this temple, that God instituted this and explained it, right? But even then, what we ultimately find out is that as the high priest has to continually come back, not just every single year as we see in Hebrews chapter 9 that talks about the Day of Atonement, where the, whole, where the high priest would finally, the only person that was ever allowed into the holiest place of the temple and the tabernacle and could only come there one day out of the year and could only come there if he was bringing the blood of a sacrifice, walked out of the temple and guess what he was faced with? A sinful people, a sinful priesthood, a sinful person in himself. And the sacrifices, even though there was only one big day of atonement where he was allowed into the holy places, the sacrifices were perpetual every single 
day, multiple times a day, there is a sacrifice. And Hebrews 9.9 tells us that all of this, even even the, the system that God designed is a system that is only meant to expose the fact that nothing that we do in our strength, even all of these sacrifices offered, verse 9, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. All our best efforts to fix ourselves are broken and leave us broken. And when we attempt to deal with sin by ourselves, we only perpetuate our problem. That was the struggle of all of the, is the, the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. They're trying to, in their own effort, in their own way, and even though they're being obedient to God, they're trying to fix the problem. And God has given his religious rituals and practices and, and patterns not to be a source of salvation, but instead to point them to a source of salvation. And the fact of the matter is, this isn't a problem that is true just of the Israelites. It's a problem of you, and that's a problem of me. Nowhere has this been more real than in my own heart over this past week, as God has been working upon me as I have been studying this passage of Scripture, listening back to the last couple of weeks, seeing where we are. And as your pastor, the Bible makes clear that one day I'm going to be accountable for how and where I lead you. And bearing that burden of accountability stirs up inside of my heart a lot of times fear and insecurity. And in that fear and in that insecurity, I find there, there's this temptation inside of me that is fueled to do in my own strength what only God can do in your hearts. And that comes out time and time again as I try to do in my life and in my preaching and in my teaching and everything else. I try to do what only God can do. And when I fail in that, I get frustrated. When I don't see the growth in myself, the growth in my family, the growth in you that I expect. And so when I preach from a place of frustration, when I preach from a place of anticipation of conflict that isn't actually there, when I preach from a place where even I am desiring to see you moved in some sense in affection in your desires for the Lord, what I'm doing in those moments is wrestling with God for control of your hearts. And so when and where you sense in my preaching or you sense in my leadership here in the church any of that, then what you need to know is that I am the problem. And I am under serious spiritual attack from the enemy that wants to see our church family ripped apart, that wants to see us be a people of division. Because remember, one of the evidence of sin is that it separates and that it leads to struggle and it leads to suffering. And so where there is struggle, where there is suffering, even if it is instituted and initiated by me from this platform, that is not the heart of God but is instead the presence of the enemy. So I want to say from right here, for any way and every way that I've sown seeds of divisiveness, for the ways that I've been either condescending or aggressive from the pulpit, for the ways that I've allowed the voice of the enemy to reshape some of your questions and your concerns in, the, in this sermon series and where we're going with the church and instead reinterpret those as hostility or defiance, then all I can ask you to do is forgive me. As your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, I ask that you would just simply forgive me. 
for where you have interpreted that in, in, in this sermon series or anywhere else, because where that is is an evidence of my own struggle with sin. It's a good thing to desire a pastor who never has to repent and confess and ask forgiveness, but I pray that you will never find a pastor or want a pastor who doesn't feel the need to. And so where and how I have failed you over the last few weeks or months, failed to lead you to the place where God wants you to be, I just simply ask you to forgive me. For the way that I'm wrestling with God for your hearts, I just simply ask that you to forgive me. And I ask that you would pray for me. Because it's been said, you don't get the pastor you want. You may not even get the pastor that you need. You'll get the pastor that you pray for. So I simply ask that you would pray for me. And then I ask that you would prayerfully look at yourself. And you would ask yourself these same questions. In what ways are you attempting to deal with your sin or the sins of those that are around you in your own strength instead of a dependence upon the gospel? Are you relying on your religious faithfulness or your spiritual practices and performance for your status in front of Jesus, in front of the Lord? Are you turning to anger or to frustration, outbursts and harshness with your children or with your spouse or with your coworkers or with your family or with your friends in an attempt to address their hearts instead of speaking the gospel to it? Are you looking for a political or economic fix to the moral problem of our world? Are you looking for a program or some spiritual performance that is somehow going to bring revival either to our congregation or to our community? We all struggle within ourselves to conquer sin. And when we rely upon ourselves, what we inevitably find is that we end up more broken than we were before. All of these efforts, all of these questions that I just asked you to think about in your heart, those are all evidences of ways that you're trusting in yourself or you're trusting in man to do what only God can do. The White House isn't going to change America. Congress isn't going to change America. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to change America. And it's people who are settled in their identity in Christ, who live out that identity in front of the world, that is what our society needs. And when we try to do in our own strength what only Jesus can do, we end up more broken than we were in the first place. And what we need to come to the place of, what we need to realize is that we need to be rescued, most importantly, from ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. Instead, we're part of the problem. And so instead of, of looking to ourselves, we need to trust in God for what God and only God can do, and that is that God would rescue us. And that rescue comes to us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And that we see here in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author goes on to talk about, we see the failure of the Old Testament system, but then he jumps straight out of that into the reality that Jesus has come to both redeem us, to rescue us from our sin, and to provide us with rest. And so what you and I need today is we need to learn to rest in Jesus Christ. First thing that we need to do is we need to rest in Jesus as the source of our salvation. What we find in this passage of Scripture is that immediately after the inability, the declaration of the inability of these Old Testament practices to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, verse 9, the author goes immediately into what Christ has done. And in that, we find that Jesus Christ is the better sacrifice that purges, purifies the consciences of, of the sinners, that purifies the conscience 
of the worshipers. If you'll remember back in the Garden of Eden, God gave a command, and there was a, a consequence to that command. He said, do not eat of this one specific tree. And when they disobeyed that command, death came into the world. Death that then proceeded from Adam and from Eve to their children and on down to the line so that death has reigned. You don't see death immediately there. Why? Because something else dies in their place. Genesis chapter 3 points to the sacrificial system. It is the, the precursor of the sacrificial system. As God does what they can't do, he provides for them a sacrifice that in some way atones for their sin and satisfies his wrath and provides them with the covering that they attempted to make in their own might and their own strength. And so the sacrificial system is a repeated declaration that death is the consequence of sin. As millions upon millions upon millions of lambs and sheep and goats and bulls were slaughtered on the altar as a substitute for the sin of the people. And yet all of that could not cleanse their conscience. It's a constant reminder of what verse 22 says, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. All our best efforts is not the source of our salvation, all of the offerings and the sacrifices that we make for the Lord are not the source of our salvation. Jesus alone is the source of our salvation. And we must learn to trust in Jesus as the source of our salvation because he is the better sacrifice. Verse 14 says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, going on to the end, purify our conscience from dead works? Jesus purifies our souls and our spirits by his sacrifice. By being the perfect and spotless Lamb of God who willingly laid down his life that you and I might receive by God's grace what we need but can't accomplish on our own, which is our salvation. As the perfect Son of God, he laid down his life and in that sacrifice, he purifies our conscience. And that's the promise of salvation. That's the beginning of salvation to each and every one of us that when we look to Jesus Christ as the source of our salvation, he transforms our identity and our future, and gives us a whole new hope as he cleanses of us of our unrighteousness, clothes us in his righteousness, and grants to us then the status that we could never accomplish on our own, which is sons and daughters of God. We're not just enemies anymore. We're not just people that God lives in, in a, in a kind of not-so-sure relationship with. We are adopted, brought into his family. That's what Jesus' rescue accomplishes. And when we talk about Jesus as the source of our salvation, the specific point of application to this is for you who are here or you who are online or you who hear this at any point in the future, do you have a testimony of a starting point of your salvation? Do you have a place where you have trusted in Jesus Christ to do for you what all of your efforts cannot? Have you looked to Jesus and believed upon him to be the source of your salvation, to cleanse you of your unrighteousness, to rescue you from your sin? This passage is a declaration of hope to every single person in this room that Jesus Christ has done what's necessary to pay the price for our sins and transform us. And where and when we believe on him, he rescues us, he redeems us, he transforms us, changes our destinies. And so I pray if you are here this morning, if you are online, if you are listening to this at any point in the future, that right here, right now, God would open your eyes 
to the fruitlessness of your labors if you've never trusted in Jesus, that you would see that all of your best efforts to fix your life, to fix your family, to fix your problems, to fix yourself, to secure your eternity, it's just dirty rags. And I pray that the Spirit would lead you this morning to turn from yourself and instead turn to Jesus as the source who is going to fix your struggle, who is going to fix your strife, who is going to fix your suffering, who is going to bring you back to God. You might be here today and you have that testimony of Jesus Christ being the source of your salvation, but you don't know what it is to trust in Jesus not only as the source of your salvation, but to rest in Jesus as the security of your salvation. That's the ongoing struggle of every single believer in Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what happens in verse 15. As the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being the better sacrifice that cleanses our conscience in verses 11 through 14, when we come to verse 15, we find out he is now, therefore, a better mediator. He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that, purpose clause, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus is not just a better sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest. If you'll remember, the priests had to constantly come before the Lord again and again to cleanse their own conscience. How is it that somebody who is a sinner has the ability to pay for or deal with the sins of anybody else? And so these priests, though they were blessed and put in a specific and a certain office, they're, they're not able to accomplish what they're there to do, which is purify the conscience of the people. So we need a better priest. We need a better mediator. And Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant, the new covenant that is initiated by his death. That's what all the jargon that happens right in there that talks about a will or this or that or the other. When someone dies and that person has property, they write a will. And it's on upon their death that their children or whoever it is that is going to take that inheritance finally receives it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the ruler of all of the universe. Jesus is the inheritor of everything that is God's. Jesus has died for you, which means that everything that was his, you now receive by inheritance in the covenant. Everything that belongs to Jesus is yours. Because in him and by God's grace, you have been called son, daughter of God. By his death, he rescues us from ourselves. He rescues us also from our ongoing efforts to secure our own salvation. Look at that in verse 15. He's the mediator of a new and a better covenant. And the result of that is that he's not only the beginning of our salvation, he is the present of our salvation. Do you see that? His purpose of being a mediator is not to find a middle ground between God and man. Because guess what? There is no such thing as a middle ground between God and man. None. There is no middle ground between God and his infinite holiness and us and our depravity. So as Jesus as the mediator is not someone who brings us together. Instead, he is someone who brings us completely to God. And he serves in that capacity, not just then, he serves in that capacity right here and right now. As verse 24 points out, Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. Jesus is in the presence of God right here, right now. And according to the book of Ephesians, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are with him right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. 
We are not kept out of the holy of holy places anymore. As long as the tabernacle stood, as long as the temple stood, it was a declaration of our separation from God that we can't get to him. But the author of Hebrews says right here, Jesus has done what no priest could ever do, what you can never do. He's walked into the presence of God and he's brought you with him. And he is the guarantee that what he started, he will finish. And there are too many Christians forgetting all of these promises, and we are living our lives out in a desperate attempt not only to be saved, but to stay saved. It's Jesus' job to get me saved, and now my Bible reading and my church attendance and my tithe and my service and all of this stuff, that's the way I stay saved. God gets me saved, I keep myself saved. It's not what the Bible says. It says right here, Jesus is the guarantee. Jesus is the mediator in the presence of God who advocates for you, not just every time that you stumble, every time you fail. Every time you spit in the face of God in your sin, Jesus is there to stand on behalf of you and declare his blood over you in the presence of God. He is the security of our salvation. And so we need to learn to look to him, not to our efforts, because remember, our efforts, only lead, our efforts only lead to deeper brokenness. Instead, when we turn away from even our efforts for our own sanctification and setting apart for Jesus Christ, and we look to him as the security of our salvation, we find hope, we find we are able to rest. I don't have to show up to church to make God happy. God is happy with me. Because God is happy with Jesus, and I am in Jesus. And because I know Jesus and I am in Jesus and I am experiencing the new identity that comes with Jesus, I want to be wherever God is. Now, understanding God is everywhere, but there is something that God says that when his brothers and when his children come together for the purpose of being a church where two or more are gathered in his name for his purpose, I am there in a unique way. So I want to go to church because I love Jesus, not because I want him to love me. I read my Bible because I love Jesus, and that is where I get to meet with him and hear his voice. I want to pray because that is where I communicate with the Jesus who loves me. I want to serve because that is how I declare to the world his power and his might and his majesty and his identity. I serve from a place of security because Jesus has secured my salvation. But beyond even all of this, we don't just stop. The beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God in any way brings us back to the place that we were before and stops. Instead, the picture of the J-curve is this picture that God takes us well beyond where we were, and he brings us to the ultimate place that we could never bring ourselves to, which is the place of restoration. And we will see this in more detail next week when we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I would encourage you over the next week to go and read those two chapters. And that's not going to make a cube for me. It's the best I can. We'll undo that. But instead, that Jesus is the source of our salvation, he's the security of our salvation, and he is the consummation of our salvation. Now, consummation is just a big fancy word that I use because it keeps my alliteration going here with the S's, right? But basically what a consummation means is a consummation means a fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's not just the beginning, he's not just the now, he is the end of our salvation. He secures it from beginning to end. He is the one we see at the end in these final verses, in verse 27 and 28. And maybe you've heard verse 27 a lot. And you've been taught that verse 27 ends in a period. And it doesn't. 
It ends in a comma. Verse 27, And just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, comma, so Christ, having offered, been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus did not just come once and die and be raised again. Jesus died and was raised again for our salvation. And let's not forget, the gospel continues, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is the source of his authority on earth, and his authority in your life and my life and for the church is the fact that he is with God, not just floating around somewhere. And he is coming back to make all things new, to fix all that sin broke in our lives and in the world. And he is coming, and he, his promise is to all of those who will wait. Go read, and book, read the, the book of Revelation, especially those letters that are written to those churches. Every single one of them ends with a promise to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres, to the one who overcomes. I will give life. And Jesus says right here, or the author of, of Hebrews reminds us of the words of Jesus as he talks about those, those, wit, or those um uh, the, the women who go out and they're anticipating the arrival of the bridegroom. And there are some that take and their lamps are full and they have extra oil in case he delays in his coming. But then there are those that are lazy and they figure that they've got enough time and they don't take enough supplies with them and they find out that they are not prepared. They're not anxiously waiting. Jesus told us to be waiting, to be looking, to be anticipating his return because in the day of his return, all things will be made new. All that is broken will be fixed and repaired. All the sin and the strife and the struggle and the suffering that you and I experience will be washed away and wiped away as he wholly comes in his return. And so we must be people waiting for Jesus. And the way that we wait for Jesus is we rest in him. It's that simple. We remember the gospel. We hold firm to the gospel. We let it so saturate our identity that it just pours out of absolutely everything. Every pore of our life, every word that we speak, everything that we do is flavored by, shaped by, colored by my identity in Jesus Christ, who has rescued me from my sin and who is restoring me by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying me and setting me apart. We wait for him by fighting to remember who he is, by living in a rest that comes and trusting in him as the source and the security and the consummation of our salvation, of being people who fight to remember our identity in Christ, to remember that everything is yes and amen and done in him, period. So I pray that you find rest in Jesus today. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work upon your heart and your life right here, right now, and would prompt out of you all of the things that you are depending upon to shape your identity instead of Jesus. Is it your church membership? Is it your nationality? Is it your lineage? Is it your performance? Is it your politics? What are the identities competing with your ultimate identity in Jesus? We're going to talk about that a little bit more in another couple of weeks. But right here, right now, I pray that you would find your rest in Jesus. Because if you're tired, 
you're tired of church and you're tired of the monotony of your life, you're tired of yourself, you're tired of reading the Bible, you're tired of praying, you're tired, you've tried it all before, I would wager to say that you've tried it in your own strength. And you've been reminded by God that as long as you're depending upon yourself, you're only going to perpetuate your brokenness. And what you need today is Jesus. And so I would invite you this morning to go before God Kneel before him, the God who is willing and ready to dispense all of the grace, more grace than you could ever ask or imagine. You have to come to the place of need first. God won't give you grace if you don't think you need it. You have to come to him in confession and repentance. God, open my eyes to the things I'm trusting in alongside of or instead of you. And instead, show me the better way of Jesus. I'd invite you, if you would, go before the Lord right now and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in your heart and your life the ways that you are trusting in something less than the gospel. Go before the Lord right now and ask him to reveal how it is that in your brokenness and in your sinfulness, you're running after things that are less than God and God's best. And I'm going to close this in prayer in a moment.